Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Build Your Network podcast, the only top-rated show committed to helping you grow your business, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Let's get into the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. If you're new to the show, this episode is a midweek mashup episode, which is basically where we take past episodes, we go through our archives of some of the amazing guests we've interviewed here on the show, and we take little clips from their episode, all based on one particular topic. So today's topic is mental toughness. And we brought on three of the best that we brought onto the show to talk about this. And I can't wait for you guys to check it out. So first of all, we have Yost Jansen. Yost is a former Navy SEAL. The stories that he talks about even before he was in the SEALs and then the things that he did during BUDS and, and training and the things that he pushed through are, are super impressive. And then and then one conversation that him and I had was about, about how to raise your kids with a similar level of toughness in a day and age where everybody's pushing for comfort. How do you make sure that you give your kids opportunity to struggle uh, so that they can build that muscle up over time? So that'll be a good one. And then uh, Akshay Nanavati. Akshay's a buddy of mine who wrote a book that the Dalai Lama uh, endorsed, actually. And so Akshay is also an ultramarathon runner. He often tells me that he'll spend, you know, just run 14, 15 miles just to stay in shape. And uh, we were having a conversation one time about how he did 80 miles one time without listening to any music or something like that, because uh, he looked at that as being something that was more of like a mental crutch uh, than anything else. And then he did a uh, five-day darkness and silence retreat or seven-day darkness and silence retreat where literally went into this place. It was just a dark room and you sit there and you meditate or whatever. I don't know what you do, but you don't do anything else <laughs> for seven days. You don't talk. You don't speak to anybody. You don't hear any noise. You don't hear, listen to anything or uh, you can't read anything because it's completely dark. And uh, this is this type of guy he is. He always stretches uh, what he can do and uh, and is pushing for pushing for the limits and trying to find them. So Akshay is a really, really uh, good part of this one as well. And then the last one would be Dean Karnazes. Dean is a full-time ultra marathoner. And this guy, this guy has to be one of the most underrated people out there. Like everybody knows David Goggins. Everybody knows like a couple of these like big key characters. Nobody knows Dean and they they definitely should. Here's just a couple of things that, that Dean has done. Dean ran 350 miles in 80 hours and 44 minutes without sleep in 2005. 350 miles in 80 hours <laughs> without sleep, which is insane. The famed ultra race that that even like Gog Goggins and some of these other people talk about a lot is the Badwater Ultra Marathon, uh, which crosses Death Valley and finishes in Mount Whitney. So like the lowest point in North America to the highest point in North America. And so you cross Death Valley in 120 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, and then move up to uh, move up to Mount Whitney. And this is 135 mile race. He didn't just compete in this race multiple times, but he's actually a winner of that race. And so this is, like I said, one of those guys just super underrated, ran 3000 miles across the US from Disneyland to New York City in 75 days, running 40 to 50 miles per day, did 50 marathons in 50 states on 50 consecutive days. I mean, this guy is just an absolute savage, uh, especially when it comes to mental toughness. And any of these guys will tell you that um, beyond being in peak physical shape, the only thing that pushes you beyond these types of limits is definitely the mental part of it. And so I want to bring all these people into one single episode to talk to you guys about mental toughness. So enjoy this episode of Mental Toughness with Dean Karnazes, Akshay Nanavati, and Yost Jansen. So uh, this is something I want to, I kind of want to talk about. I'm sure, I mean, you have some crazy stories that we could definitely get into, but can you talk a little bit about how seeking out struggle has helped you achieve 
like success after success after success. And I'm not, I don't mean it like in a masochistic kind of way. I'm, I mean it more like, hey, do more hard things and you will be rewarded greater. Like, can you talk into that for a second? Yeah. It, it's the feeling you get when you finish SEAL training. You went through all of that, which is, you know, the hardest thing at that point I'd ever done in my life. You feel invincible. You start believing that anything you want to do, you can do. And that carries through on outside of the SEAL community. Like if you want to say, hey, I want to start a business. I want to face some different fears. I want to do that. It's really effective. But one thing I've noticed though, is you can't do something difficult once. And that won't necessarily ride you through the rest of your life. The lesson I've learned now, after all these years later, that if you don't continue to do difficult things and do things that are outside of your comfort zone, and there's a little bit of fear and anxiety involved, then you get way comfortable very easy. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you know, because you, I was a Navy SEAL, nobody's going to say, hey, you should be doing this and that, you know, because they just don't because you're a Navy SEAL. I can right. relax right. now. But mm-hmm. if you do relax, then your life starts going the wrong direction. Yeah. So for me personally, like, like I try to, you know, I don't always follow what I preach to the T, but I try to continue to do things that are well outside my comfort zone. And when they succeed, no, all of them don't succeed. But when I do succeed, it gives me like that feeling that I can, again, that I can do anything going right. forward. Right, right. So give us a couple of examples of what that might look like. So, because I don't want people to get this idea of like, you know, your problems don't matter type thing. Like, I'm just saying that you shouldn't always seek out what's most comfortable. And our society is notorious for seeking out most comfortable things and for teaching our, you know, kids and grandkids to not have struggle and to try to prevent them from doing hard things and trying to make life as easy as possible for them. So, can you give us like a couple of examples of what that might be for somebody? Yeah, let's talk about society first a little bit and culture, the kind of culture we're all in right now. I'm raising two young boys, my wife and I, and they are 11 and 12 years old right now. Mm -hmm. And all around me, the standard of good parenting right now is you remove all struggle from your kid's life. Mm -hmm. You make it easy for them to go places, to play with the sport they want to do. And make them comfortable and buy them nice things, spoil them on their birthdays. You know, you keep going down the list. And I noticed nobody's asking their kids to go through pain, suffering, or build mental fortitude or anything like that. And I see what's happening around me. I mean, don't even get me started about the childhood obesity thing or anything, but that's a whole nother topic. But really, like I noticed my kids, it takes so little for them to become entitled. Yeah. Right. And, you know, so I made it a point to as much as possible to have them do things that are scary to most kids or difficult, you yeah. know? And one mm-hmm. of the things I'm doing with as a whole family is like, we decided to, Hey, let's hike the Pacific Crest Trail. And for those of you that don't know what that is, it's a trail that starts at the border of Mexico and goes all the way on the West coast up to the border of Canada. So it's 2,650 miles. And a lot of crazy people will do that in one, you know, in one year, within a year, within mm-hmm. a season and four or five months, they can finish it. But with the kids, we decide to kind of chunk it up. We'll do like a three day, a four day trip at a time and slowly move our way up there. And it's difficult for them. And we've hit downpour rain. Just a few months ago, we got caught into a big snowstorm on top of a mountain at 8,000 feet, you know? And oh, so you, they have to, I mean, you see them and they're, they're miserable, but it's like, Hey, we don't have a choice. We're up in the mountain. 
right. get hit by a snowstorm. <laughs> exactly. So let's figure out how to survive the night and then we'll continue on. And it's, it's just making them do things where it wouldn't even be a big deal a couple hundred years ago. Right. Yeah, but exactly. No, but nobody's exactly. doing it anymore. You right. know? And it's the same thing as, you know, when we pick sports for them, my kids wanted to race BMX and race motocross. Mm-hmm. And it's a sport that it puts you out of your comfort zone. I love seeing my kids like on the starting ramp at the Olympic training center. And it's a big, steep launch ramp. And when I, that gate goes down, you're flying and you're immediately in the air off the first jump. And I can see like the tension and nervousness on their face. And I know that they're out of their comfort zone and yeah. they still do it. Like I'm trying to build that pattern. It's like, Hey, you don't want to really do this. You would rather be anywhere else right now, but you do it anyway. Yeah. And I love that. And it's so funny that you bring that. I mean, like you said, a couple hundred years ago, it's super normal. Like that's just what you do. Like when you're going to the next town, you walk there, (laughs) you know, know. or you're on a horse. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that's something that I've really tried. That's why I'm I'm asking. I'm curious about this because it's something I'm really trying to implement in my own life is thinking about like, how are we supposed to live? Like, how are we like, you know, in our biology made to exist? And it's only been in the last hundred years that we've like super comfortable and really the last like 50, 60 years where like we get in a car and we drive places and we can, you know, get on the escalator or an elevator to go up flights of stairs instead, or we can go from our air conditioned car to our air conditioned house, to our pool, to like this place to make me more comfortable here. Or I can turn on the heater when it gets cold. I can have everything, the perfect temperature that I want it to be so that I'm never, ever uncomfortable. And it just teaches you that like, I think that the small struggles at that point seem giant because yes. you don't, you've never dealt with anything that you've had to like, like you said, have mental fortitude through. Like you don't have any real issues. So like when you stub your toe on the corner of the bed or you forgot your keys in your house, you're like getting to this outrage and you're upset at the world for three hours. You're like, well, I guess it's just one of those days. You know what I mean? It's like, bro, you left your keys in your house. You know what I mean? Like it's such a, a skewed idea of what real struggle is. And, uh, you know, I noticed too, there are times like when I'm overseas and, you know, on a tough deployment trip or something like that, like I'm thinking, Hey, I'm going to go home. And all I'm going to do is chill, relax and sit on the couch and watch TV and (laughs) do nothing. And, you know, and then I start, I go home and I do that. And I'm like, wow, this is so not what I thought it was going to be. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is so right. anticlimactic. So then, yeah. you know, at that point, you got to keep reminding yourself when I start working for a goal and that goal involves comfort or making my life easier. I know now that's not the right goal for me. It's not going to satisfy. It's going to have an inverse effect. So right now I try, like when I have a goal, I want it to be something, first of all, where the probability of success is low. Because, you know, if the probability is low, whether you make it or not, if you make it, it's a bonus. Yeah. But yeah. just the fact that you're out there pursuing something that very few people are pursuing is very satisfying. So not like running a 5K or something like that? <laughs> no, I mean, it's like for me, like right now, with all my past injuries of all, all these years, it's like something out of reach for me and low probability. Let's say I do a 100-mile ultra marathon. Now, the chance of me being able to finish something like that at this point in my life is very low. And because of that, it's very interesting to me to someday maybe try it. Hmm. 
<laughs> That's such a... I just love that perspective. I love that mental perspective because it's the only thing that holds us back from doing those kinds of things is ourselves and what we think we are capable of doing. And the only thing that makes us think that is the culture that we've grown up in that makes it yeah. seem like that's impossible or that's out of your reach. There's no way you can do it. And here's a big thing. like Nobody knows their limits. And mm. the only way to know your limits is you push yourself all the way to your limits. Mm. And it's awesome to know exactly where that is because you'll surprise yourself at where your limits really are. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much good stuff here. And by the way, this goes like across the board too. So it isn't just like a physical thing that we're talking about as far as like run an ultra marathon or do, you know, a Spartan race next year or something like that. It's like, uh, I mean, we were even talking a little bit before Yost about like how difficult it was for you to jump up on stage and speak to an audience of people, right? That would be an example of doing something that was out of your comfort zone. It totally was. It's like, I've never really had to do that before. At the most, I do a brief in front of my platoon or people. And a brief is easy. It's very technical to the point. It's no big deal. Mm -hmm. But my biggest fear of going on stage is I have a fear of sucking. You know, I have a fear <laughs> that, that I'm not going to deliver what I know in the back of my mind I'm capable of doing. Yeah. And the easy way is just to say no. And I remember the first, I think last, year was the first time I really spoke to a big group on Nicholas's first BDB event. And I remember three years before that, Nicholas was like saying, Hey, you should do this. You should speak. And I'm like, and just kind of to shut him up. I'm like, Hey, if you ever get a hundred people in the room, I'll come speak, you know, yeah, thinking yeah. there's no flying chance that's ever yeah. going to happen. <laughs> you know? And then he did it. <laughs> and then he did it. <laughs> but it's good. But it built a pattern for me. Like, first of all, it's like, whatever comes out of your mouth, you have to do. Because yeah. words are powerful. Mm -hmm. So if you say it, you do it. And yeah. not just to other people, mostly to yourself. Right. You know, so people that say that wake up and go, on Monday, I'm going to start working out or I'm going to start my new diet or I'm going to have a morning routine. And Monday rolls around and it doesn't happen. You just lie to yourself. Right. And you just built a pattern of deceit. And yeah. it's so much easier the next time. Like you said earlier, you're practicing being awesome or you're yeah. practicing yeah, it's quitting. And so yeah, I've always been in the habit, like I'm very slow to agree to things because once I do, I feel like that's a commitment both yeah. to myself and second, mostly to myself, but also the other person. Yeah. Where in our society, we would rather commit to somebody else and let ourselves down every day. You're always practicing something like that. I think yeah. people get that wrong. Is yeah. they're like, well, it, when I get up, that's when I'm practicing that habit of getting up. It's like, no, no, no. When you decide to sleep in, you're practicing the habit of sleeping in as well. Like it, it's, yes. it's both. Like you're always practicing something. You're just either going to practice quitting or you're going to practice sticking in it and getting that extra rep in or getting up when you say you're going to. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed 
survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent Fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at Indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to Indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So what was your first ultra run? And for those who don't know what exactly that is, can you kind of define that? Sure. So an ultra marathon is basically anything more than a marathon is considered an ultra marathon. So race wise, they have 50 Ks and you go up into 50 milers, 100 kilometers, 100 milers, and they even have 200 milers and stuff like that. So anything more than the 26.2 miles, which is a marathon. Okay. Uh, and in my first one, like I've actually only done one official race, which was a 50 K. Other than that, I do ultra marathons on my own fairly regularly. So I can't even remember I've done a ton of them. Uh, the most recent ones that stand out was one where I just did a 80 miles around a 0.2 mile loop. So 400 laps around this 0.2 mile loop for like 20 hours. That was psychological torture beyond the physical torture as well. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Why? (laughs) Why? (laughs) I get get that a lot. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I chose to do the around the 0.2 mile loop is I want to get to a point where my internal state can be so centered regardless of the external state. Now, I'm not even close to there. This is kind of a lifetime of practice, right, to develop this. But I want to be able to run, whether I'm running a 0.2 mile loop or running in the magnificent mountains of uh, Montana or something, right? Like regardless of the external environment, my internal uh, state is still the same. So running around a 0.2 mile loop offers that opportunity to train. I mean, obviously it's nowhere near as fun as running you know, I've done some amazingly beautiful runs in like Bhutan or the 17 mile drive in California and Montana, you know, where you're seeing nature, you're in these spectacular areas, different world than running around this damn loop for 20, 20 hours. Yeah. But, but I'm tra- it was, it was training to, I mean, for most of that run, I had no iPod, no music, nothing. So just being with my mind and, and in a way it's even more challenging than running on a treadmill because in a treadmill, for example, you can kind of cover up the screen and get lost in the flow of this. In this way, every loop is just this brutal reminder of how little you've actually covered. You know what I mean? Right. So, so you have to navigate your mind. And man, that's a fascinating battle. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> T- tell me a little, I know we talked about this, like just kind of hanging out uh, one time, but tell me about the darkness retreat that you did, because that's something that, that I find yeah. super interesting. So this was all within a span of like a month that right after the, this crazy run, I went and spent one month in pitch, I mean, sorry, one, not one month, one week in pitch darkness, isolation, and silence. And one of the reasons why I went there was, so after I, like, a, was it now two years ago or something? I went through a very challenging divorce, really rough, went through this whole battle with that. And uh, I ended up breaking my sobriety. And obviously I did not like that about myself. So I realized some 
there's still parts of it missing within. I needed to go deeper within to find out what's going on there. And I've always had this fear of stillness, which I would argue that we all have, but sure. yeah, we're, we're not, we're not, we're not like, it, it's not something people would consciously say. If you say, are you, what are you scared of? I don't think people would say stillness, yeah. but from my experience of humanity, we do. And which is why we do everything to avoid stillness. Right. 100%. So being the kind of person who embraces the extremes, I found the most intense way to go confront stillness. And, uh, it was seven days in pitch darkness and complete isolation, silence, and an incredibly profound, deeply spiritual experience. I mean, I would highly recommend it to everybody. To everybody, really? Yeah. I mean, would you recommend recommend the other things that you do to everybody? (laughs) I, I mean, I'm not saying you have to do what I do to find the sort of spiritual awakening, but you do have to, I would argue, have to suffer. Find your own ways to suffer. It doesn't have to be seven days in darkness. It doesn't have to be running 80 miles around a 0.2 mile loop, but push yourself, engage, go into spaces where one part of you wants to fight and the other wants to quit. And the more you put yourself within that battle, the more you will find an awakening, the more you will find a spiritual pathway that will not only teach you, I mean, not only spiritual awakening, but in every context, personally, physically, financially in your business, you know, so you have to suffer to grow. And there's, so the, the idea is find your, and, and the more you do it, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't someone who always running 80 miles or doing what I do. I mean, when I was a kid, man, I was terrified of Ferris wheels, Ferris wheels. So it wasn't that I was born this kind of, I mean, I built it over time. Yeah, so the more right. you kind of step into suffering, the more you'll want to keep pushing the line because you will find the beauty in it. And the reason I love this message so much, man, is because everybody in culture is always preaching the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Everybody's mm-hmm. always telling you to seek comfort. Yeah, like any, like all marketing channels are all pushing you to easy to the comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like we we live in just if you if you rewind a couple thousand years, like this is just how everybody lived their lives. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. And I'm not saying that's a better way to live. I'm you know obviously I, I'm glad that I was born now and not two thousand years ago. <laughs> but <clears throat> but to your point though, we were built biologically to suffer. Absolutely. And that's where that's where we mm-hmm. find a lot of our lot of the beauty in, in our lives and that and the pursuit of the things that we that we love and in pursuit of those things that make life like worthwhile. Like those yeah. those things require suffering in some form, mental, physical, emotional. Like they like yeah. they require you to go through those things to in order to be able to have that positive result at the end. Yeah. And it, like and, said, just, everybody's always like, you know, preaching the we live in houses and we drive yeah. cars like <laughs> who is built to make us avoid suffering absolutely we i mean even, do even it from purpose. our core even from like the core ethos in america right what do we say the pursuit of happiness i believe that itself is a flawed concept because when you pursue happiness then suffering becomes a barrier to that if mm-hmm. you pursue meaning instead of pursuing happiness we should be pursuing meaning because then suffering becomes a part of the adventure suffering becomes mm-hmm. something of value not an obstacle to the path of happiness and even what you're saying man i mean marketing messages in the fitness space is such a good example of this everything is saying like how to get six back abs and walking 14 minutes a day mm-hmm. you know how to lose weight without exercise now like yep. technically i know that ex- that losing weight is more about the diet than the exercise like i know all of that this is not that's not the point the point is we are saying here's how to get a result in the easiest quickest right. path yep. and that's the flaw it's not about getting there it's not about the six back abs it's not about the million dollars it's about the person you become through the transformation which only yes. happens in the struggle Yep. And we so per, it's becoming the yeah. King Arthur that can pull Excalibur, right? It's becoming it. the version of yourself Absolutely. that allows you to be able to, to enjoy the things that you've been able to build. 
Yeah. And so that's why it's about pursuing that meaning. I call it your worthy struggle. Find your worthy struggle. It could be hosting a podcast. It could be writing a book. Everything worthwhile, man, you know, building a business, hosting a podcast. It's not easy. It takes work, you know, uh, and that work is beautiful. I don't, I also don't like that idea that people say, you know, if you love what you do, you'll never have to work a day in your life. I think that's garbage, man. Like I love yes. what I do, but there are days where it's work. It's yep. hard work sometimes, man. <laughs> yep. But that's what you know? makes it awesome. though. That's like, what makes it awesome. Anything that's, exactly. that's that good is equally that bad. Exactly. I love it. Everything worthwhile I've done in my life from joining the Marines to building a business to writing a book to running ultra marathons is I've gone through at least one moment where I'm like, this really sucks. Why am I doing it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why, why am I just like not on the beach in the Bahamas? Right? <laughs> yeah. But that's what makes it worthwhile to your point. Yeah, I love Absolutely. it, bro. Um, we're, we're so on the same page with so many things. Um, and I, I appreciate you for coming on. I do want to ask you this question because it's the question that I ask everybody that comes on the show and it's about networking, it's about relationship building. And uh, yeah. one thing that I want to point out that I just kind of like kind of glossed over when I introduced you was that you got the Dalai Lama to write the foreword of your book, which is just absolutely amazing. Um, so I know that this is something that I know this is a value that you hold near and dear. And I know that you and I are both in a, a mastermind that cost $100,000 to be a part of. And so I yep. know that relationship building and networking and mentorship and all these things are a big part of your DNA. So I'm curious to hear your answer to this question. Do you believe, Akshay, that who you know or what you know is more important and why? I think, I think it's a combination of both. Obviously, who you know, I mean, we both know that, the connections. I mean, success, I hate to say, hate, hate to say that cliche, but success is a team sport. You know, Nothing worthwhile happens alone. It's mm -hmm. mentors, it's coaches, it's people you support along the way, people yeah. who support you. So it's that team. But what you know also contributes to that because if you pursue mastery at your craft, like, I mean, there's that uh, book and that quote from Steve Martin, be so good, they can't ignore you, which yeah. I absolutely love. And so if you, if you become that kind of person who is just the highest level at your craft, what you know and who you are, it will draw people to you. You know what I mean? So I think it's absolutely a combination of the both and you got to be pursuing mastery at both. Love it, man. So what, what are you up to these days? What, how can we support you? How can we get to know you better? Uh, you know, what I'm doing right now is continue spreading the fear of honor message, helping people navigate their experience around suffering. So I have the book fear of honor. It's on Amazon and audible, Kindle paperback, all the profits go to charity. I also have training courses on my, on my personal website to help people pursue mastery, mastery at their mind, their body, their spirit, and a course on how do you get publicity? So how did I get the endorsement from the Dalai Lama and stuff like that? How do you get your message out there in the biggest way possible? So I have courses around that and just, uh, spreading, spreading that word, man, helping people pursue mastery of mind, body, spirit, and their craft. We've created a culture and an environment where the we're supposed to do a certain path, we're supposed to do a certain thing. And what you were saying, the uh, Henry David Thoreau quote, is that most people will never actually figure out what that is because they just go throughout life doing the thing that everybody says that they should be doing rather than the thing that they know that they want to be doing and need to be doing, but it's just not traditional. So because it's not traditional, because there's no way to pay a mortgage with that, then there's no way to actually do that in life. And I think it's just really is a, comes down to our values, Dean. Like, What do we value in life? Do we value everybody else's opinions? Because that'll get you nowhere. Do we value our time? Do we value having money or status? Do we value time with family? Like, What are the main values that we have? And how can we shape our lives to match those values? And how can we question those values every once in a while in a healthy enough way to make sure that we're still doing the thing that we should be doing, if that makes sense? It does entirely. And I think you hit on some really good points. One that point that a lot of people don't think about is, you, know, you said people just get tired and they, you know, they just kind of follow the routine. They get up every morning and they shave, they go to the office, they come home, they're exhausted. Physical health, really matters because to set your own course through life, you need energy. <laughs>
you definitely need to be physically fit. I found that people that have their physical health are much more energetic and pursuing their goals. Otherwise, you know, if you're tired and lethargic all the time, you just kind of fall into a rut and just kind of scrape by every day. And a lot of people, unfortunately, I think live their lives like that. They, you know, they get in the car, it's a horrible commute. They grind it out at the office. They might even be doing well at the office. And they come home, they're just exhausted. They want to have a beer and eat pizza on the couch and they fall asleep and get up the next day and do that. And I always tell people, you know, start by reclaiming your health. It might be counterintuitive. Like if I'm spending more time running or more time in the gym, you know, how is that advancing where I want to go? It's giving you more energy overall. And I think more physical energy is just going to help you get to where you want to go. For sure. And I think it builds the habit of improving yourself and doing things, making the difficult choices. Instead of coming home and drinking beer and eating pizza, you come home and drink water and have a salad. Like that's a decision that you used to make that was bad and bad for you, bad for your health, bad for your family, bad for your longevity. It's bad in a lot of different ways. And you change that habit from making the easy bad decision into making the more difficult but good decision. And that habit is a habit that will can take into any aspect of your life, regardless of what it is. And I think health is one of the most black and white ways to start building those kinds of habits. And since we're talking about this now, I, I want to get into the running that you do, Dean, because this, this is really... Uh, like I was telling you before I hit the record button, I've been going through David Goggins' book recently, Can't Hurt Me. And the dude just has an incredible story and uh, talks about all the things that he went through before he started running these ultras and doing all these you know long races and stuff. And up to that point, you're thinking like, man, how much more physical turmoil can this guy go through? And then he runs his first ultra and realizes that it's a completely different game, even from like SEAL training and the stuff that he had gone through already. So when, when uh, you and I booked this chat, I was really excited to talk to you about this because it's something that's been on, on the forefront of my mind recently. Can you talk about a little bit into what was your drive behind like going from running a marathon, 26, 27 miles, whatever the exact number is, and then going into running these ultra marathons where it's literally 100 mile plus races. What was the driving factor, the driving force behind that decision? Yeah, I think a company I work with called The North Face, they have a really great motto, never stop exploring. And I had this, I've always had this sense of exploration. And exploration for me is what is the limit of human endurance? Like how far can we push our bodies before we break? And so I ran a marathon, as you said, and then I heard about this thing called an ultra marathon. I I came across these two guys that were going to run a 50 mile race and I couldn't wrap my head around it. I thought, oh, 50 miles, no, no human can run 50 miles nonstop. And they said, yeah, that's a plan. So I found out where this race was. I thought, I got to try this. I got to throw myself into it. I, you know, I signed up for the race. I somehow finished the first 50 mile race. And this is back in, uh, uh, 1992, you know, not to date myself, but it's a long time ago. And so at the finish of the 50 mile race, I see these guys I had met who told me about it and they're high fiving in the finisher's tent saying, We qualified, we qualified. And I'm thinking, you know, you qualified for an insane asylum. I mean, what do you qualify for? I'm glad to be alive. And they said, No, we, uh, we qualified for the Western States 100 mile endurance run. And I said, Wait, 100 miles? Are you, are you serious? And the guy's like, yeah, you run 100 miles. It starts at a ski resort in Lake Tahoe. You run to the very top of the ski resort, and then you keep running for 95 miles on a wilderness trail through the mountains. You know, you run all night. You put on a headlamp. You eat while you run. You do everything. You have to cross. You have to forge a river, and you try to get to the finish line within 24 hours. And I was so fascinated with this idea of a human being running for 24 hours. You know, a hundred covering 100 miles under their own power. And I thought, that's just fantastic. And I signed up and I, I actually finished the race. 
And it was just such an expansive experience because it, it went beyond, it transcended running. It was big and possible thing that I somehow pulled out, like I achieved it. And those lessons were so, they translated into everything that having to do with life, you know, with business, with everything. Yeah, that's what exactly what I was about to say is like the crazy thing about those races is that yes, it is a lot of physical, but it's it changes the game from like a marathon where it's like, okay, how much did you train? Let's are you physically prepared for this to like those hundred mile races are a mental game. You can't train enough to be like ready for one of those to make it a breeze on race day. It's going to be a mental game the whole time. And that's what I find most fascinating about it. And so from there, this was like 92, 93 timeframe, you said? Yep. So from there, can you build out kind of a timeline? Because you've done since then some amazing feats. I mean, running 50 marathons in all 50 US states in 50 consecutive days, that's absolutely insane. And then winning the world's toughest foot race, the Badwater Ultra Marathon, and 135 miles nonstop through Death Valley in the middle of summertime. And that that's a race that David talks about in his book as well. So I, I, I know that that's something that's like really, really well known in that world. And and you were actually winning that race. So but build, build a little bit of a timeline here for some of these like major accomplishments and just walk us through what the thought process was. Yeah. So on that same theme of never stop exploring, I, I finished this 100-mile race and I thought, wow, that was amazing. Can you possibly go further than that? And I learned of this race called the Badwater Ultra Marathon, which, as you said, is a 135-mile foot race from the lowest point in the Western Hemisphere, which is Badwater, which is right in the middle of Death Valley, not far from Las Vegas, actually. And it finishes on the highest point in the contiguous U.S., which is Mount Whitney. So the idea is to run from the lowest point to the highest point, uh, nonstop, 135 miles, and they hold the race in July. <laughs> it's very, very hot in Death Valley. So you're not only running this extreme distance, you're running in the most extreme elements on Earth. The highest recorded temperature ever on the planet Earth was in bad water. It was 134.6 degrees. And people say, wow, it was 100 degrees today. And I, I tried to go jogging. It was impossible. Imagine running 135 miles in 130 degree temperatures. And that's the Badwater Ultra Marathon. That's absolutely insane. So before we move on from that, can you talk a little bit about prep going into something like that? Like prep work in terms of like how many months are you training? Is it a constant like you always training? And then also what does it look like for the couple of weeks leading up to it in terms of like nutrition? And because I know obviously like it's about pushing your body to the limit, but also people die from that type of heat. So how do you like push your body to the limit while also preparing enough to make sure that like, okay, I'm not actually going to die? Yeah, no. And to your first point, as soon as you register and get accepted, when your entry is accepted to this race, there's not a living moment that goes by you're not thinking about it. And it might be, you know, the race might not be for eight or 10 months in the future. I will guarantee you every single day, what will be top of mind is, oh, I've got, I've got bad water coming up. Oh man, bad water's coming up. You think about it constantly. It's that commanding, it's that commanding of a, of an endeavor to throw yourself into. The other thing I do is I run, again, I'm, I work with the North Face. I run in my big puffy North Face ski jackets in the middle of summer, in the middle of the day. <laughs> I get some funny looks. I was running down the road with a huge puffy ski jacket on trying to emulate the heat. And then I also, I go into the gym and I do sets of uh, push-ups and sit-ups inside the sauna. And those are some of the ways I train specifically for that race. 
Got it. Got it. So talk to me a little bit about nutrition. How do you like stay hydrated? How do you... Is this like 30 days out from the race? Okay, I got to start eating this to make sure my body has this. Like, How much prep work goes into the nutrition that you give your body before a race like that? It's every day. So it's not just for bad water. It's every day, every second of every day, I look at myself as an athlete. So I view Dean through the lens of being the best animal that I can be. So that has to do with 360 degree approach, a very holistic, everything from training to cross training to pre-race diet and nutrition to quality sleep and also to my interpersonal relationships. I think that if you don't have stable, harmonious interpersonal relationships, you can't perform at your best. And I think that that element is, I think, very overlooked by a lot of athletes. They have very disruptive relationships with friends and family. And I think that negatively impacts your performance. So I also look to optimize my interpersonal relationships. And all that has to do with networking and choosing the people you work with. So all of these things come into play for me when I'm looking at a race. And I try to balance and, and perfect all of them. That's so much stuff to keep track of too. Do you, do you have like a team that you work with? Or do you just like, is this something that you just are always conscious of? No, I have a, a really big team. So I have kind of a, a circle of really close confidants that I work with very closely. And then a, kind of a broader team where I get advice from. And then I constantly am absorbing information about athletic performance. So reading up constantly, listening to podcasts, constantly looking at what others are doing. And as well, constantly experimenting. There's a guy named Tim Ferriss, who's kind of a, a life hacker. And you know, if he's talking about it, I was probably doing it a year ago. So just constantly experimenting on myself to see, you know, is this going to help me? Or is this going to hinder me? As long as it's something legal. I'm not going to put illicit drugs or anything in my body. If you're a listener out there and you're looking for ways to stretch your mental capacity and you've never been athletic, you know what I mean? Like a lot of people who are in the marketing space, the online marketing world, geek out on marketing things, but then like the extent of their workout is really, really little because they've never been that person. They've been the, the person to go out and push themselves in the gym. But if you want a real way to build the habit of pushing yourself beyond what you think is capable of what you think you're capable of, then athletics is, I think, probably one of the fastest ways to do that because you'll figure out what you're made of really quick. <laughs> There's you'll you'll figure out really soon, like, first of all, that I'm not in shape, but also how much further can I push myself beyond what I think my body's capable of? And Dean, you could probably talk a little bit more intelligently into this. But recently, I was reading somebody's work recently. And there was a study that said that most of the time, we quit when our body's around like 40% capacity or something like that. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I do. And the thing with me is that I've gone over the edge. I mean, until you, until you go over the edge, you don't know how far the edge is, right? So I, I've pushed myself to the point where I've actually blacked out on the pavement. So I know how far I can go. And I'll tell you, when I go to the gym and I see people in there, I mean, not to belittle anyone that's going to a gym, but I've got to say, some people are like, why are you in the gym? You're, you know, you're just you know, looking at your Instagram feed, you're texting with people. When you're in the gym, be in the gym, you know, work out, <laughs> make your body work. So I, saw, I see a lot of people just kind of going through the motions and I, I just kind of want to shake them and say, hey, you're pulling yourself. And that's why I get back to running. I mean, running to me, is, it's the purest form of athletics because it's the simplest. You don't need anything. It's so approachable for anyone to start running or walking. You can just start today. All you need is a pair of shoes. And it's very quantifiable as well. You can say, wow, I, I tell people when they first start out to don't set a distance goal, set a time goal. And I say to people, try to run for one minute continuous when you first start out. And people say, oh, it's just a minute. 
a lot of people cannot run for one continuous minute. And they, they sprint out too quickly and they get winded. And by 45 seconds, they're forced to walk. So I tell people, learn how to pace yourself, run continuous for a minute. And when you meet that goal, you've accomplished a goal. And then say, okay, maybe three minutes. I'm going to try to run continuous for three minutes. And typically, you'll fall short. You won't be able to make it, but you'll learn from the experience. Wow, I went out too quickly. I need to start out slower. And eventually, you'll run for three minutes. And I say, try to run for five minutes. And again, you're breaking through barriers that existed for you. So you're learning how to go beyond the edge. And I think you prove to yourself that you're better than you think you are, and you can go further than you think you can. And again, as we discussed, these lessons translate from running into all elements of, of business and life. Yeah, so true. So true. Tell me about like a specific time that you can remember, maybe in something besides running, where you looked at something that was going to be difficult for you, whatever it was in business and maybe a family relationship, maybe these book deals, you looked at something that was that you looked at and you're like, man, this is going to be really difficult. And then in that moment, you reminded yourself of all the difficult things that you've done in running. And that like boosted your confidence to be able to tackle that difficult project. Do you have any stories like that? Well, I mean, yeah, it, it happens to me all the time. I People say, well, you learned so much from your failures. To learn from a failure, you actually have to fail, right? <laughs> Unless you have the courage to fail, you're not going to learn anything. And what I found is that micro failures are where you learn. I mean, the big, audacious, hairy goals that you fail at, those are very visible. And those are a little more difficult to quantify why exactly you failed. But if you sign up for a half marathon, you know, and you say, I want to run it in two hours, and you don't make it in two hours, you basically fail. It's a micro fail, but it's a fail. And just yesterday, I gave a keynote talk to a corporation in Ohio. And I flew in the day prior, and my flight was delayed, typical flight flights these days in the summer. So I got in, and I didn't get to sleep till about one in the morning, had to get up at 7 a.m. East Coast time. Actually, I had to get, I had a talk at 7 a.m. So I had to get up at 6 a.m. East Coast time, which is 3 a.m. because I live on the West Coast and give a corporate keynote. And I wasn't on. I have to be honest. I got a standing ovation, which I think was very gracious of the audience because I wasn't there. I just did not perform my best. And I reflect back on it. And I think you screwed up. You should have taken this more seriously in every element. And that should have been, you should have booked a flight much earlier in the day. Because you, you were cutting it kind of tight, you missed your connection because of a delay, and it screwed everything up. So in the future, be much more conservative. I mean, just that one lesson, be much more conservative in booking your, your flight so that you're a little bit rested. So I learned that. And I also learned that when you're having a difficult moment, what's the best way to get through it? And the best way to get through it is to be in that moment, be in the here and now, in the present. I think what happens a lot of times when we're going through difficult situations is we think about the future, we reflect on the past, you know, we think about where things are going. And I don't do that. I just think about the actual moment in time at that moment, whatever I'm doing, do that to the best of my ability and get that granular where it's almost, it's almost like a Zen-like state. And when you're running to me great distances and you hit that proverbial wall, you know, people say, how do you get through that? Do you chant a mantra? Do you turn on music? What do you do? None of those things work. You know, you chant a mantra and you, you soon realize I'm just chanting this mantra because I'm in so much pain. I'm trying to distract myself. You can't distract yourself. So instead, I just say, you know what? Just put your foot in front of your last foot to the best of your ability. Just take your next step to the best of your ability. Take your next step. Get that granular. Just focus on your next step. Don't think about the fact that you still have 50 miles left to cover. Don't think about tomorrow. Don't reflect on the past. Just take your next step to the best of your ability. And, and that'll get you through some really difficult 
difficult times. Hey, hey, thanks for listening to this episode. That's it for today. As you all know, this show is completely free. Our only ask is that if you found anything valuable in this episode or in any of the episodes you've listened to, then share it with somebody else and leave us a quick rating review in whatever platform you're listening to right now. It would be super, super helpful for us. Uh, So that's it for today, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Catch you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.